Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Tel Luca here. Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. And I'm Whitney Lowe, and Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. So check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com where Thinking Practitioner listeners can also save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. Thanks again so much to Andrew Beal and to the Books of Discovery team for their support of our podcast. All right, Mr. Till, good to see you again and be back with you uh, again this week. Um, Likewise, Mr. Whitney. Yep, you've been out in the desert for a while. It sounds like you were... (sighs) Touring around a little bit there, taking took some a, took fresh an air trip. That's right. Yeah. Headed out for to Canyonlands, and we're doing some backpacking and some camping out under the stars. Really great. How about yourself? How you been doing? Doing good. I'm trying to um, get a bunch of work done for me. This is sort of the calm before the storm hits with um, baby bird season. With us doing a lot of uh, rehab here, that keeps my wife very busy, and me sort of helping out in the springtime and early summer. So. This yeah. is the time period we try to get a bunch of stuff done and get prepared for that. So you're getting nice ready for that important thing you do to help spring happen. You're helping the birds That's be right. part of that whole scene. That's right. Yes, indeed. So, and uh, so consequently, um, we start thinking about things when we're out in these spaces. And uh, uh-huh. today we're going to think about some things uh, shoulder related, I think, right? Isn't that what we're talking about here today? Yes. Shoulder related, shoulder pain, subacromial pain, rotator cuff pain, a lot of crossover there. Uh, also known as shoulder impingement syndrome. But like I said, that crossover thing, it, it's, I'm excited about it because it's so common, but it's also, uh, pretty broad, but, um, we'll get into that. I think as we go about how that broadness is part of the story, but yeah, we're talking about shoulder pain. Excellent. And uh, I think we got a whole lot of stuff we're going to dive into here today, which means um, lots more resources to look into. And I think we will have a handout on this episode Uh, as well to explore some of this stuff in greater detail, right? That's right. You can go to uh, either of our websites and request the free handout. Uh, Just click the link there in the show notes. And then I also want to give a plug for Diane Metkowski's Shoulder Jam event coming up in May. If you're listening to this live, check that out. We'll put links to her event on our site as well. So you and I are both doing that with her, Whitney. So this is a fun preview conversation. Yeah, it's going to be a fun event. I'm looking forward to hearing and um, exploring and seeing a lot of other perspectives about you know, various aspects of, of shoulder things from uh, folks from all around the world participating in that and um, getting some really good uh, input on those things. So it's going to be fun. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, part of this, part of the reason I think she picked that topic and part of the reason we're talking about this is because it is so common. There's so much interest in shoulder pain amongst manual therapy practitioners, massage therapists, body workers. We have, in my own training school, we have a whole lot of topics we teach 
the shoulder topics are always some of the most popular. If you just go down the list and see which ones are getting the clicks, which search results are landing activity, if the word shoulders in there, it gets attention. So which tells me yeah. that a lot of body workers are wondering, how do you deal with shoulder issues? Right. You see that? So, too? yes, indeed. So tell me, Till, for those um, trivia nerds, how common uh, is shoulder pain? <laughs> shoulder pain? <laughs> well, how common is shoulder pain? It's super common, but subacromial pain in particular, which, is, which we're going to try to focus on today, subacromial pain is the most common type. And they say that's something between 44 and 65% of all shoulder pain complaints. So shoulder pain is super common. This particular type of shoulder pain is really common too. The subacromial being, say, probably the most common type of shoulder pain. And then I also just want to, as we're giving the context here, just say that it's a big deal when your shoulder hurts. It's, uh, you know, it disrupts your sleep. It's hard to get comfortable, which has all sorts of effects that cascade into maybe the pain perpetuating, but then also being in a bad mood or, you know, and it's not feeling great. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it impacts your function. You're able to do things. You can actually have, you know, measurable weakness, of course, but then also you just avoid doing stuff when your shoulder hurts. So this is a high impact area. Yeah. Shoulder being, you know, the joint of our body with the greatest range of motion and involved in so many different things. Uh, um, you know, I noticed this was interesting. I've noticed for myself because I've got a little minor subacromial pain thing going on in my shoulder, yeah. um, which over the last several months, I was doing a whole lot of work emptying my father's house. I was moving a lot of furniture, moving a lot of heavy stuff. And I think that's probably a lot of what led to it. But I, you know, I know a lot about shoulder stuff. I've dealt with it for years. And then still, mm. even with all of that, I notice this, like I reach overhead, like there's that pain, like, uh-oh, I'm mm -hmm. going to be in trouble because I feel that, you know, subacromial pain thing. And then that starts all this whole cascade of things running around about what's possibly going on there. What's probably wrong. What do I need to do about it? All that sort of thing. So Okay. So you're referring to a bunch of interesting stuff there. The activity yeah. you did of, of cleaning out your dad's house. And then the sensitivity uh, in a particular motion, raising your arm, you said up overhead. And then you said that cascade of associations or fears or assumptions that that triggers in a way. Yeah. So I think all those things are part of the puzzle, whatever it is that we do that aggravates it, the actual movements that seem to trigger it, and then the way that we react to that. that seems yeah. To be and these story. Exactly. And so I think those are the the kinds of things, you know, a number of those factors that we want to pay attention to as we're talking with our clients and taking histories of what's going on just to uh, remember things are oftentimes not just one simple little thing, but there's often a, a number of different factors that are going to be going to be a part of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's narrow it down a little bit. Let's let's start with subacromial impingement syndrome or SIS. It's that there's a lot of debate around that term, and we'll get into that. But first, let's start there and define that. That was okay. If I jump in on that, with me? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, why don't we even start with the words subacromial? Okay. You know, and sort oh, of like yeah. zero in on where we are and what does that mean? And and uh, so, yeah, let's jump in. Tell me what you got there. Well, uh, subacromial. Let's talk about where that is in a second. But it's basically a pain on the front or side of your shoulder when you lift your arm, either out to the side or out in front, shoulder abduction or flexion, or sometimes a little rotation, but basically pain on the front or side of your shoulder. And this was a, this impingement syndrome was a term 
that uh, was first used by Near in 72. And that became kind of the dominant explanation for why a lot of people's shoulders hurt with that particular motion. The, the idea being that there was uh, some sort of impingement or compression of the structures in that subacromial space. That's the space between the coracoacromial arch and the humeral head. And that compression would lead to tissue uh, damage or or degeneration, and that would cause the pain. Yeah. Let me uh, also jump in real here just for a moment to, to kind of do a little brief anatomy refresher and talk about what are some of those tissues that might be impinged. Okay. Uh, because a lot of times there's uh, an emphasis, you know, just in terms of broad generalizations, people say, oh, I got bursitis in my shoulder or something like that, because there is a bursa there, and that bursa is richly innervated, and that can often be painful. Yep. But we have a number of different tissues that might be susceptible to the the potential compression and impingement in that area, such as, you know, the subacromial bursa. We have the supraspinatus tendon in there. We have the upper margin of the glenohumeral joint capsule. We have the tendon from the long head of the biceps brachii um, that's potential uh, uh, subjected to compression in that region. And we'll talk a little bit more in, in a few moments, too, about some other structures, even things that you might not think about as much like the, the upper, more superior margins of the subscapularis tendon can get compressed, especially during some of the forward flexion motions in there. So, um, and the keeping, keeping in mind too, that the joint capsule, the glenohumeral joint capsule is richly innervated. So, um, irritation of that, uh, capsule uh, itself potentially getting impinged there. Yeah. So this, uh, you've named a bunch of structures, but let's zoom out a little bit. I'm skipping, uh, you know, I had a little bit on your outline, but you get this sense that this is in the shoulder. Most of you know where these structures are, but let's just get really specific. This, where is that acromion, Whitney? So if you just like put your, you know, fingers on the lateral part of your shoulder, that, you know, stiff, flat sort of table that you feel on the, the lateral edge of your shoulder complex is the flat surface of the acromion process. So we're talking about the things that are right underneath that. You can feel that sort of sharp uh, shoulder edge there, and the, uh, that is your acromion process. And then just if you roll over toward the front side a little bit anterior, uh -huh. um, you may be able to feel also another kind of bony projection, bony. kind of like a little pinky finger size sticking forward, and that's the coracoid process. Okay, and so now then, you're not talking about my arm bone. You're not talking about my humerus. You're you're medial to that, right? So we're so on the front side of the shoulder here. Front side point. of the shoulder, not the yeah, lateral side. Yeah. But yet that coracoid process sticking through from the scapula. Exactly, and so the coracoid process and the acromion process are both structures of the same bone, which is kind of interesting. There's projections of the scapula, and mm -hmm. there is a ligament that spans between those two um, projections. And mm -hmm. that is the coracoacromial ligament. And I've always found this uh, sort of anatomically interesting because we generally think of ligaments as structures that are maintaining stability mm -hmm. between adjacent bones. Joints. And right. here you have the joint. a ligament spanning between two structures that are part of the same bone that never move away from each other. So why do you need a ligament there? Why do you need a ligament yeah. that doesn't cross a bony joint? Yeah. Tell us. So. Well, I, I don't have the actual answer because I've not been able to ask the builder, but I have a theory. Okay. Yes, okay. So, What's your theory? So predominantly the purpose of that coracochromial ligament is to offset 
the potential damage to the coracoid ligament because the, uh, excuse me, the coracoid process, because there oh. are three strong muscles yeah. attached to the underside of the coracoid process, all pulling it in a downward direction. Yeah. There's the short head of the biceps brachii, the coracobrachialis, and pectoralis minor. Love They're it. all pulling that coracoid process down. That's and true. Generating sufficient force could potentially break it off. Or um, at least, yeah, I could totally get that. I mean, that little thing yeah. is like skinnier than your little finger. Right. It's a big bony projection and there's a lot yeah. of force on it. So yeah, right. probably need some kind of supporting so, structures there. Go up above it, tether it, hold onto it, rope it with the coracochromial ligament, hold it in position there. So um, I like it. That's that's my theory. Yeah. No, but your point is, so now that we know what we're talking about, I'll just go back to what you were saying. Any of those structures in there could be the, say the irritated structures, you said impinged structures, but we're going to get into the debate around that, whether there is actual impingement or not. But any of those structures, and you've also used the term nociceptive driver, the, the, the thing, the anatomical thing that seems to be the origin of the uh, nociceptive signal. So any of those structures around there, including the acromacrobicular joint, because sometimes a fall yeah. on the shoulder or something like that will... Uh, Irritate, injure that joint, and the irritation that comes can be part, similar, much very similar to this pain. Classically, the impingement syndrome is thought to be non-traumatic in most cases. It just kind of comes up from on its own, or maybe from use, or maybe from cleaning out your dad's house. But it's you know not thought to be a traumatic injury. But there's so much crossover between all these different shoulder symptoms that uh, we're taking the big picture view here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll dive into some of the other uh, mechanics and problems here. So after we sort of um, go through some of these terms, um, you yeah. know, you've mentioned the, this uh, discussion of impingement. I want to bring up another uh, sort of distinction, too, as they were looking, you know, the, the terminology that's been used over years since Nier first kind of explained this. There's right. uh, oftentimes a distinction made between primary and secondary impingement. Yeah. Um primary impingement being um, a potential compression of those structures that's based on the architecture of the shoulder. So meaning that maybe you have a small uh, subacromial space or you have, uh, for example, something that we, we see frequently in, in people over time developing um, sort of osteophyte buildup on the underside of the acromion, causing the, the acromion to change its shape. And yes. you see, uh, see references to what's called a hooked acromion, yes. where the acromion sort of uh, comes, the, you decrease space underneath it between that and the humeral head. And so that would be a primary impingement because it's a structural problem. The secondary impingement being some type of uh, potential compressive damage in there that's due to usually faulty biomechanics or something in the way you're using their shoulder, which may not necessarily be directly related to the structure of the area, but more about like the fact that you're doing something over and over again that's causing those tissues to get uh, irritated in there. So irritation yeah. secondary to an activity or impingement secondary to activity as opposed to being primarily due to the structure involved. Right. That's a classic yeah. distinction there. Yeah. So uh, and another interesting thing that I was coming across when I was doing some reading on this recently is in some of the um, discussions about this is, is distinctions between 
um, what they were calling intrinsic factors and extrinsic factors of, of rotator cuff damage, mainly talking about supraspinatus because the supraspinatus is one of the most commonly involved tissues in this area because it can really, you know, its tendon is very vulnerable underneath the acromion process. Yeah. Um, extrinsic factors being those like external compression and, and pressure against bony structures nearby, like the, the acromion process or osteophytes on the underside of it. And intrinsic factors being some of the things that might occur with overall tendon degeneration within itself that lead to weakness in the tendon, possibly the development of, of tears within the, the supraspinatus tendon that may not necessarily be caused by something scraping on it or pinching it from outside the tendon, but more of just the, the sort of, just like overall tendonitis in other places, just as some degree of tendon degeneration occurring in there. Well, we could branch off into all sorts of discussion about degeneration uh, points of view, inflammation points of view, and then how sensitivity can arise from that or might even be independent of that. Yeah. You know, yes. What you're, you're doing is you're giving us a great outline of the way that the shoulder impingement has been classified, both in terms of types, which is based on the degree of mechanical damage and on the uh internal, you know, internal, external, and then also on the location of the impingement, which is the uh, intrinsic, extrinsic kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So those are important classifications. And I also wanted to bring up one more kind of uh, division or classification of these types of, of problems. Most yeah. of the discussions that you'll see in the literature around um, shoulder impingement syndrome, rotator cuff pathology, and that sort of thing focuses on what's called subacromial impingement, which is an impingement underneath the acromion process. But as we mm -hmm. talked about a moment ago, we have that coracoid process also, and then the ligament that spans between those two. And the coracoid process, the ligament, and the acromion process all together make up a combined, well, let's call it a structure that we refer to as the coracoacromial arch. So all three of those things together make up the arch. And sometimes the impingement is farther toward the coracoid process and felt more on the front side of the shoulder as opposed to the lateral side. And in that instance, it's referred to frequently as subcoracoid impingement instead of subacromial impingement. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, this tends to affect more of the, the subscapularis tendon and the biceps longhead tendon uh, underneath the coracoid uh, process and in the coracoid subcoracoid region. Okay. So we've gotten pretty granular there. We've gotten a lot of variations. We've gotten some specific locations. Uh, is it time to talk about the debate yet? Yeah, let's talk about the debate. What is that debate? You know. Okay. The, the debate is, is there, there are a couple. One is around the mechanism involved, and the other is around the way we describe it, the way we talk about it. And uh, the debates have been pretty large and pretty vocal. And they seem to be maybe settling out. They've been going on for about a decade. You know, there's about four decades ago that NIR came up with this classification system. In the last decade, the people have been saying, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's not always impingement. Impingement syndrome assumes that there's some mechanical impingement. Maybe there's pain or symptoms that are independent of any impingement. And yeah. for evidence of that, there's um, most, almost everybody narrows that space in normal motions and the, the measurements that are given is that space narrows all the way down to two millimeters in people without any symptoms at all and opens up as much as 17 millimeters. And that's just part of normal function. So there's a compressing of that subacromial space and all those 
structures that run through there, just in normal motion without any symptoms at all. And then the correlation between shapes and symptoms hasn't borne out in the research. And it turns out there isn't a correlation between uh, acromial architecture and particular symptoms. You can't reverse engineer it and say, if you have this architecture, you're more likely to have a symptom, it turns out. Now, that's not to say that it's not always involved. There can be a compression involved, but most people, I think, at least from my reading and my listening, Rachel Chester being the, the uh, her, you know, her both her research she's done, but also in the podcast we'll, with uh, Physio Edge, we'll put a, uh, I'm saying that wrong, what is it? Um, you know which one I'm talking about? It uh, is a, a Physio Edge, I believe, was the, was the one. I think Physio Matters. I think I gave their competitor a plug. Physio Matters, I believe. (laughs) We'll put put the right link in the uh, the show notes. They're both good, so listen to them. They're both good. There you go. But uh, she's saying, in fact, she's saying it's formally called the subacromial impingement syndrome. But since this suggests that what's needed is more space, we now now know that acromial shape is not associated with pain. She's preferring, as I think most people, the term subacromial... Help me out here. Pain syndrome. Thank you. So subacromial pain syndrome rather than impingement syndrome. So that's describing the symptom rather than the presumed mechanism. Yeah. Since we're not sure of the mechanism, she's saying let's describe the symptom. Yeah. What do you think? And I think that's that's an important distinction because you know describing it as an impingement syndrome um, immediately brings our focus into how do we make more space in there so that it doesn't get pinched, and uh, you know we'll tap into this a little bit when we talk about the treatment, but you know, one of the things that's led to this um, re-examination of this whole idea of subacromial impingement syndrome is some of the treatment processes that have been used to address this, such as you know, surgical decompression and you know, making more space in there and acromioplasty and things like that that have done specific things to make more space have found you know, right. some of those surgeries work really well but in a number of those instances, uh, they get just as good of effects with various other types of procedures. And, and in fact, they've done a, a number of sham surgeries where they didn't actually do the subacromial decompression, but they just did an arthroscopic incision and yeah. people got better. You know, their pain decreased, even though nothing was actually done in there. So it really changed the perspective, I think, a lot yeah, on like, right. how much is structure really uh, the cause of this? And so. That's the debate. That's, that's huge. Yeah. And that's huge for me because you know, my, my training is a rolfer and structural integrator. And then the training that I gave to people said, let's create space there. If there's shoulder pain, yeah. whether it's even adhesive capsulitis or even something like a rotator cuff irritation, any of those things we can create, quote, in quotes now, create space. And that seems to uh, relieve symptoms. And that was presuming that compression was the problem. Well, when I read and hear this stuff, I go, well, of course, we don't know that compression is the problem. We know that sensitivity and pain are the problems. And there's probably ways we can work with those very directly that might yeah. involve decompression, but maybe not. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't have to. Yeah. Because another thing that was kind of interesting that I ran across this and looking at, it, again, some of the systematic reviews of these different um, treatment procedures is that... Uh, even in a number of the individuals who had failed rotator cuff repairs. So for example, they had a rotator cuff surgery and the surgery was performed. And then for some reason or other, it it failed. And they went back and looked at the rotator cuff with MRI. They saw like severe, significant tears still there, but the person was out of pain. 
you know, so oh, like, yes, well, why does that happen? You know, and that just like, that's right. You know. And the other side of that was just uh, looking at the incidence of rotator cuff tears. It's so common. I think yeah. the number of pops in my head of one third of people have some sort of tear or damage visible over a certain age, yeah. visible on a scan that, and they don't have symptoms. So the correlation yeah. there between rotator cuff uh, image findings and symptoms is pretty poor as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that leads us to then thinking about, all right, then, well, what is it? Because obviously something's going on there. And so, you know, some of the, the theories now that have emerged mm-hmm. that are suggesting that what we're probably looking at is a complex of factors in many people that might be, you know, mechanical uh, factors, because clearly I think there is a role for the mechanical idea of impingement being a driver of pain sensations in there. That certainly makes sense. For um, yeah, would you, Sorry, I'm going to interrupt because uh, yeah. do you say that's for, is the qualifier on some people okay to add in? Yeah. There? Yeah. Okay. Because that's how I yeah. think about it too. Yeah. I think yeah. there's often I think for, for, for certain people, that's that's a factor. In yeah. other people, it may not be the ma- major factor. So what is it in, in a number of those other people? And there have been a sort of uh, alternating theories proposed. One of them is related to that, you know, what we're probably seeing in many of these complaints is, uh, and it's, we can see why it's easy to blame the mechanical factors of potential uh, impingement and compression here, because there's not many places in the body where we see this same kind of scenario where soft tissues get pinched by between two bony structures. Um, so this is a place where you get pain, and you see the potential for that pinching between two bony structures, and then you jump to the conclusion, all right, the pinching of the soft tissues is the cause of pain. But we have tendon disorders and tendon pain all over the body uh, in places tendon. where we don't see that. Um, so what was that? I'm thinking Achilles tendon. There's not yeah, a lot of yeah. structures there that pinch it, but we get the same kind of tendinopathies and tendon irritation. Exactly. There. Patellar tendon, you know, like uh, extensor tendons at the wrist and, and the forearm, you know, all those kinds of places. So why not? Is this potentially a, an issue here that you have the same kind of metabolic or possibly age, in many instances, age-related degenerative processes in the tendon that might cause those kinds of pain sensations? Because we see a lot of subacromial pain in older populations um yeah so you know sixth decade of life they say yeah which makes our 50s sorry whitney i'm, hey, I'm getting past that you are i'm, I'm uh, rapidly crashing out of my 50s as well <laughs> this year so um yeah so uh i'm i'm making the best of the last six months of my 50s i got left here so uh, <laughs> good enjoy it yeah um <laughs> yeah where were you oh so yeah talking about metabolic factors and, and things that might uh-huh. be related to tendon degeneration um, may be related to, you know, some of the, the pain sensations for a lot of these people. Now, wait a minute. Ten, that's, that's again, like, like we're questioning the assumption that impingement causes pain. Isn't there some reason to question the fact that uh, degeneration is part of the pain in tendons as well? Um, you know what I'm saying? Well, why would we... Like if we're saying it's possible that all these things could be present in different degrees for different individuals, um, I'm not sure. I'm kind of getting what, what your question is there. My question is, you said tendon degeneration, age-related tendon degeneration, et cetera. There mm-hmm. can be age-related tendon sensitivity without degeneration. Yeah, sure. There can be, there can be, sens- there can be painful, irritated, and inflamed even uh, tissues without degeneration. This goes back to the tendonitis, tendonop- tendinosis yeah. debate. 
yeah. in a sense. Which yeah. again, that pendulum has swung back and forth. We used to think it was all inflammatory, then we thought none of it was, and yeah. now we're realizing that there's probably both involved, and it's less clear sometimes what the primary generator is, but both of those are routes to help make it better. Yeah, I think so. With the metabolic questions you mentioned, like the inflammation ones, or the perhaps degeneration or healing, you know, kind of uh, questions there as well, or mechanical yeah. loading. Yeah. Stuff. You know, I love going back to, and, and maybe with something that we can make a link to on our visual uh, handout or something like that, but uh, Greg Lehman's concept of the, the painful cup, um, he talks frequently about uh, each individual comes to us with a cup yeah. that might be uh, comprising a unique group of factors that may be pain irritants or aggravators, and some of those may be metabolic factors, some of those may be mechanical factors, some of them may be overuse, some of them may be you know, all kinds of things, stress-related, whatever. Each individual brings a unique cup of those things to us. And it's important for us to kind of consider what are all those factors that might potentially be involved as we, as we try to evaluate the nature of that problem in order to, to construct a treatment strategy that we think. No, is I, know, I know the visual you're talking about, He's and it's also used for stress. You know, Greg uses it. I think yeah. I forget who attributes it to, but it's, it's all the idea that the, anything in that cup can raise the water level of it. And when it spills out, we have pain or we have an episode or we have a flare up or we have something like that. And you're saying that maybe degeneration could be in that cup, maybe metabolic inflammation could be in that cup, et cetera. Yeah. Maybe activities yeah. could be in that cup. Lack of sleep could be in that cup, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. All those things I think uh, potentially involved there. So, um, so um, looking down here, you've got a couple other things that... Um, I want to to look at when we, as we talk about subacromial pain syndrome. Um, yes. There's some other things, you know, we've talked about tendon disorders in particular, but you, you've got some other things you've mentioned here that we need to consider as possible causes and some other, um, you know, what are you looking things at? to consider. Like, back on track. Like what? Yeah. So you mentioned like subacromial bursitis and calcific tendonitis and, you know, rotator cuff pathologies and things like that. What are... These are all some things that might be part of this whole bigger picture of of subacromial pain syndrome. Well, yeah, that's and that's part of the debate around calling it impingement. That there could be lots of things going on there that could cause yeah. that sensitivity or pain. So that's why somebody like Derek is saying 2014. He's saying it's all uh, all non traumatic, usually unilateral shoulder problems that cause pain or involve pain. That they're localized around the acromion. And they often get worse during or after lifting your arm or sometimes rotating the arm. That's his kind of uh, SAPS, subacromial pain syndrome definition. Yeah. And those things you mentioned, the bursitis, the tendinitis, tendinopathies, rotator cuff could all be part of it, as we said. And now there's, like we said, I've been saying all along, there's, we don't really have a big agreement on what is causing the pain. But as you said, too, there's a lot of agreement that there's a lot of factors in that cup. Yeah. So, uh, what? How would we know what might be causing that pain? Is it time to talk about tests? You think? Yeah, this is a good time to segue into. I think looking at you know how do we figure out the nature of these problems and yeah. you know the one thing in in terms of reading a lot of the literature around this that seems evident still is that there are no real absolute definitive ways to identify this. So the best that we can often do is look at a, the, the accumulation of evidence through testing a number of different strategies and trying to keep a bigger picture view about what may be potentially going on here. So 
one of the things that that I always emphasize greatly and would start with is is just the critical importance of a thorough and comprehensive history because this is something that I just think a lot of soft tissue practitioners don't do thoroughly is you know dig into a lot more of the questions about you know the nature of what causes pain how did it come about you know the previous involvement of, of those areas and really probing for a good picture of the things that potentially produce pain prior to doing our physical examination. Um, so those are uh, critical things that I think are necessary at the real outset. And then we maybe get into some other things that that might be identifiable during the, the physical examination part. So you're saying taking a good history, getting a, have a good thorough conversation with your client beforehand is crucial to your way of thinking. How do you use that information? Do you then start to form a hypothesis for yourself about the factors involved? Yeah. So let me give an example of, of how that would drive what goes on in the physical examination. So let's say, you know, a person is talking about certain types of things that they can't do. Like when I try to reach up and lift this garage to pull the garage door down, you know, like lift my yeah. hand in this position. So you've got a, a physical activity motion that they've described is one of the most painful things they can think of that reminds them, this is what hurts every day when I do this. So I'm making note of those motions and the direction and position that that shoulder is in that they say hurts a lot. So uh -huh. I'm probably going to leave that motion till the end of my evaluation process. Because if I start having them try to repeat that, when I start to test range of motion and test their movements in their shoulder, if I test those most painful motions first, I may flare up the whole thing and make everything else hurt. And then it's going to be harder for me to tease apart what structures might potentially be doing that. So, um, the history questions drive a lot of what we decide to go evaluate more uh, specifically in the physical examination, maybe also the order in which we attempt to do those things too. So you're sorting the, the cards in your hand, the hand you've been dealt, you start sorting them out and going, okay, these are the ones I'm going to play last because they might be the irritating ones. I want to save them and don't, don't want to flare things up early in this process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. And are you uh, also... I mean, I do that too. I'll just make a statement there rather than ask. I want to hear your thoughts about it. I do that too. And I'm also asking questions like, why, you know, what makes it worse? What makes it better? Mm -hmm. As clues to me of some of the possible mechanisms or at least factors involved. Yeah. But I'm also, I'll ask things like, uh, have you had, say, manual therapy, body work with it? Did it help? Because some of these things that might involve inflammatory reaction can be worsened by a too aggressive approach. And I want to know if that's happened before so that I can, you know, modulate my uh, ambition yeah. toward helping it out. Yeah. And then it's, you know, it might also be if it's an ongoing uh, issue for someone, and I suspect I might ask something like, how is your sleep? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's, how, what do you, how is your, how are your stress levels? How yeah. do you, how do you address that? How do you, what do you, what resources do you have for dealing with stress? For, exa yeah. for example, what yeah. is your level of physical activity? Because that's been really clearly correlated with symptoms right here in this joint, someone's overall physical activity level. Yeah. So again, all of these uh, factors of history are really crucial. And just to make another point about that too, a lot of times what I'm doing with the history is also oh. setting up the process 
for how I'm going to make comparisons when I look at patterns. And for me, this is, and this is just part of the way I think, is that I look for patterns that tend to make sense. So, for example, I might ask in the history if a person says like, oh, man, it really hurts when I lift my hand uh, up overhead yep. to grab the handle on the bus when I'm on the subway or whatever, you know. Um, right. And then I'll ask them, well, does it hurt when you are, you know, lying down in bed and you just have your head, your hand draped up in that same position? Does that hurt? And then they'll say either yes or no to that. So now I'm making a comparison between active movement and passive positioning of the shoulder in that same position and seeing if there's pain with both of those things, because one of them may indicate more of a problem with the contractile tissue, like the supraspinatus that's engaged to lift the arm up and grab the subway, you know, handle. The other is just a positional thing. And then I'll go through the same I want to just take motions. out my highlighter. Sorry, I'm taking out my mental highlighter, yeah. interrupting you and saying, let's yeah. highlight that. Yeah. Because you're saying you're trying to find out if contractile tissue is involved by yeah. bringing in an active motion of yeah. that. Yeah. Structure. Right. And then we compare that with a passive motion of that you know, structure by not engaging the contractile tissues. And mm-hmm. then when I do my, you know, actual physical examination, I'm going to test those motions and do a manual resistive test, which will engage the contractile tissues, but not put the shoulder in that position where it might further be getting compressed. And again, that helps me tease out a pattern of is this particularly like a supraspinatus involvement or might it be a, a non-contractile tissue like the bursa, the ligament, uh, or something like that? And that sort of helps tease apart what structures I think are most involved in that process. So for me, this, this ability to look at these patterns of you know active motion, passive motion, and the resisted motions and then compare the results from them is really helpful in trying to discriminate where I see those those tissues involved. And, you know, to give an example of that, we'll include something on the handout. I've got these little charts that I put together that, you know, help you think about what happens to those yes. different tissues during those different motions when you're doing the evaluation process. So, you gave me a preview of those. Those are a great cheat sheet. You get to, like, compare the motions with these different variations you've described and yeah. get a little key under what structures might be involved. Yeah, so, uh, okay. So let's say, can I ask you another question about that? Yeah. Let's say you do your comparison of active and passive and you, let's say you suspect contractile tissues, which I assume you mean myofascial structures or muscle, uh, fascial units, myofascial yeah. units called muscles. Yeah. Muscle right. tendon units. Yep. Muscle tendon units. Let's say you identify one of those. Then you just, what? Then you go rub the heck out of it, right? Now that you know what it is. Maybe. <laughs> I used to say that, yeah, I'm going to go rub the heck out of it because I'm going to, you know, break up the scar tissue and do all the other things that we were told that we were doing to those things uh, from the impingement process. And uh, so now I'm not so sure that those are actually the things that are happening, but, you know, lots of different strategies may be helpful in there. But this also does uh, help, I think, a lot because it this can help a lot in, in patient education in terms of what we're trying to tell our clients, the things to kind of avoid early on, the things to maybe focus on, gradually work your way back into doing this kind of thing, but don't start, you know, doing this kind of thing early on because you're going to overload that, that really irritated muscle tendon structure. So you're using the results of those tests to educate the patient and help them understand which things they want to grade or experiment with or go slowly back into. Yes, because, I mean, for me, the assessment drives the treatment. So, you know, the assessment's giving us a good, um, 
roadmap for where we think the primary problems are, whatever the nociceptive drivers are for that particular problem, and then how do we chart a course that's going to be able to get them back on track and, you know, decrease any in further aggravation of those involved tissues and, you know, find some results there. Well, you know, I was obviously joking about rub the heck out of it, but is, would you say that you go choose some techniques that might specifically touch or work with those structures you've identified? How do you approach yeah, that? Absolutely. Because, uh, Again, here's when we've talked about this before. While our our ideas might change about the narrative behind what we're doing, we found treatment strategies over the years that seem to be really effective. So something like deep transverse friction of uh, irritated structures has, you know, for years been shown clinically to be pretty effective in dealing with a lot of chronic overuse tendon problems. And I'm using that as your sort of rub the heck out of it model. The most aggressive kind of approach perhaps to really get in there and work it. It's irritated. Let's go, go, go. So our narrative around that frequent formerly was that we were, you know, helping to break up fibrous adhesions and, and, you know, realign scar tissue that was, Uh you know, getting that to be working well. I'm not so convinced any longer that that's really what's happening for a number of biological and physiological reasons that make that less plausible to me. But I know it gets good results in many instances. And I still think there's a lot of advantage to what we might be doing with descending modulation and, you know, a targeted treatment approach that Uh gets sort of the whole neural and metabolic processes going in there. I think there's still maybe some potential benefits of the things that we've seen about uh, increasing fibroblast activity by pressure and movement on some of those structures that might have a role in the the healing process and the remanagement process. So um, I think there's a lot of potential benefits to those things that just might be a little bit different than what they, we thought they were previously. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, you're just making me think, I know we've got into this in other episodes as well about working with inflammation and tendinopathies and things like that, but from my side, I rarely rub the heck out of it, although I will sometimes think about working fairly directly in a way that I'm consciously stimulating an inflammatory response. Now, that is playing with fire because that can flare things up. So I, I do that really judiciously and with clients who we have both the rapport, but especially who have the kind of resilience metabolically, medically, age-wise, and things like that. Yeah, to uh, to you know deal with a flare up if we if we inadvertently cause one. Yeah, and the other thing that I would note here too, and this is you know with a number of the techniques that are are listed on the handout for you know valuable ways to address this. A lot of what we may be doing is really kind of focusing more on normalizing yeah. scapulohumeral mechanics and just oh. making the shoulder function better. You know, of just like more balanced or more. Um, you know, freely moving. Um, and that seems to have really helpful uh, effects as well. Now, I've, I've changed my thinking on that. Uh, I, there's a bunch of handouts in there with techniques from me. I don't know if you're talking about those or from the techniques, sorry, the, uh, yeah. the, the things you're going to put in the handouts. I'm actually not thinking of, of um, what am I thinking? I've gone away from, say, the scapular dyskinesis idea mm-hmm. of like making, helping the shoulder blade and shoulder move normally, in quotes. 
And I'm more generally thinking of adaptability. Yeah. So well, I'm not trying to restore proper biomechanics as much. And some of this, again, is Greg Lehman. Some of it's just the time and years of working. I'm, not, I'm less trying to restore proper biomechanics and more thinking about how can I help that shoulder adapt to whatever demands are being put on it. And how the other part of that is desensitize. How can I work with pain per se, pain itself, using my touch and maybe through those mechanisms, like you mentioned, like the descending modulation. Sometimes it's a really gentle touch that helps desensitize. Sometimes it's pressure that feels yeah. really right and helps desensitize. Yeah. And I, that that is essentially what I was getting at, that I think okay. a lot of those techniques seem to be aimed more at just restoring optimum function, whatever that may necessarily be. And Can that I doesn't take... necessarily mean you've got X, you know, X range of motion available in your shoulder, you know, but you're, you're trying to get functional yeah. movement restored there. Uh, I'm jumping all over you because I'm, I want to take the word optimal out of there. Okay. I want to say it's restoring function. It's restoring adaptability uh -huh. and okay. much less oriented yes. around an optimal or around a, an ideal or around a, uh, a normal, even quote normal than I yeah. used to be and that I was trained to be and that I trained people in. Now it's more like, can you adapt? Yeah. Can, is there a range of options? And do, then do you have enough of, of a proprioceptive acuity, enough sense body awareness or enough responsiveness to be able to uh, respond to the, the demands or coordination even to respond to the demands that life puts on you? Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important distinction because, you know, for the person who wants to be an Olympic shot putter, you know, that range of motion and generating power through a very great range of motion is really important. And for that individual that just needs to be able to get the can of beans off of the upper shelf, and that's really all that's, you know, the major demands there, the, uh, the optimum function, yeah, right. <laughs> adaptability is going to be a bit different there. So, uh, yes. for sure. Yeah. Yes. And so, but I mean, that's, and that's also to say that there are so many factors involved in a happy shoulder. Yeah. It's not, it is spine, rib cage, scapular relationships. It is the way I sit. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, it's the habits I have around where my shoulders rest. Yeah. But I'm, I'm no longer thinking about, let me reposition the shoulders back to an optimal place. I'm more thinking about, can they have a full range of options, both protraction and retraction? Yeah. Can I elevate as well as depress? And then can my glenohumeral joint be comfortable and moving in all sorts of directions? So I'll do the same things in that test you're describing, but I'll look for a sensitivity and then I'll work with the sensitivity in whatever way seems right. Either it's calming it down or it's challenging it gently, you know, or it's helping someone have other options for them yeah. until that can be more comfortable. Right. Excellent. Yeah. I want to backtrack for just a moment. I know we've kind of ventured into talking about some, some treatment strategy things here. I'll yeah. do, there's one more important point that I want to make about Please. the sort of assessment evaluation process, because for years, there's a lot of emphasis placed on a number of special orthopedic tests, you know, uh -huh. the empty can test, the Hawkins Kennedy test, the near test as the means for identifying these particular subacromial pain complaints. And yeah. um, just want to emphasize that, you know, the, the a lot of the research literature that's been looking at the evaluation process has not found many of those procedures to be highly specific and highly accurate in really nailing down what's what's happening in these areas. So like many other places, I think there is a a decreased emphasis on the critical importance of those testing procedures. And that's why I, I go back 
to this whole process of, of looking for patterns and looking for um, more comprehensive pictures that paint uh, uh, an understanding of what's happening here in conjunction with the history to evaluate what's going on. Because too many people have jumped to simplistic kinds of evaluation recipes just by running through a couple of these orthopedic tests. And to me, that's a real big mistake um, that yes. is shown to be less accurate. Or the opposite can be true where it gets way more complicated. Yeah. Maybe we need to make it too, that we need to, you know, do five tests and we have to do them precisely. And then the illusion comes up that we know, then we know what is involved and then we can just do our technique. It'll be done. Yes. Yeah. Not only does it not have to be so complicated, but often, even if we do do the, we do the test correctly and we get a result, it's not always what helps us strategically in terms of helping someone resolve the situation. Yeah. So yeah. I've moved more and more toward the actual treatment being the test, where if we can change, if we can find, if I can reproduce the symptom, I can find it, I can identify it, and then I can help someone adjust their relationship to it or adjust the way they're at, you're both moving in the moment, but also the demands they're making on their body. I've done some really good work with them at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to also bring up a, a point here too about the Please. you know the biopsychosocial factors you mentioned this in relation to some of our treatment strategies but uh, there's also something and I don't hear this talked about a lot but I do think it's relevant and that has to do with the the biopsychosocial aspects of assessment that oh. when you go through for example this kind of evaluation this sort of detailed evaluation process with somebody and yeah. you really take the time to explore this I mean I have had so many clients say to me over the years, why has nobody ever done this with me before? Mm. Um, and to me, you have built a high degree of rapport with your client that's also established a degree of, of interest that you're expressing in them and a degree of confidence in you as a practitioner that I think really spills over into how effective that treatment becomes. Because, you know, we talked about this um, in our episode about uh, expectations with Mark Bishop. Uh, this is an example of of where those kinds of ideas of expectations really play out into the um, treatment success because you have really already established a strong degree of rapport and trust and confidence from your um, patient because you've you've gone through this detailed, thorough, comprehensive evaluation process with them, and they think you know what you're doing. So there you uh, go. I do think there that goes. there's some some real strong benefits there. And that, that also, there's a nonverbal component of that or aspect, let's say a nonverbal version of that, where if you, once you get someone on your table and you start working with them, if they sense or feel that your hands are listening to them, if their hands, if your hands are discovering things about their body and showing them things about the body they weren't aware of, and in fact, there's listening to what's going on in their body, that same kind of trust can deepen and be multiplied in a nonverbal sense as well. So yeah, there's like the the thorough history taking in the interview, and then there's the thorough listening that we do with our hands that also leverages that expectation effect and lots more. Yeah, absolutely. So, any other key um, components you want to bring up related to treatment oriented stuff? I know we've gone through a lot of of stuff here, and yeah, yeah. I mean, just yeah. I think probably as we're starting to wrap up, the bigger question that we've gotten into a little bit is what helps. But let's go through it. A little systematically, what can we do that really helps when we have that kind of scapular shoulder pain we're talking about? One of the first things I do is I start, I make a call for myself based on what I'm hearing from the client. What is it that I want to address in my work? 
they come in and I don't want to just jump and assume, oh, it's pain that we're going to try to, quote, fix today. I want to listen and say, now, how are they experiencing that disturbance? Is it pain or is it the stiffness or is it weakness? Or are they uh, giving me clues that it's about the apprehension, the guarding, the fear, the uncertainty, the worry about things coming, getting worse again? You know, what's, what essentially is the domain that I want to, my work to affect? Because so often, and I see this with us hands-on practitioners, we get where it is and we think we know what to do. We you know, understand what yeah. you know where the location is, and then yeah, I got a technique for that. Let me go do it. Yeah. But uh, the disturbance, the thing that might actually be upsetting to the client, might not have an anatomical location. It might be again more this more of a apprehension or a fear. And there's ways that I can slow down and listen, and like with both my words and with my hands that we've mentioned, that actually help shift that apprehension as well. Yeah. And then stiffness, uh, the distinction between stiffness and pain, your tests that you're going to put in the handout there have some nice ways of dialing down. Is it contractile or non-contractile tissue? But stiffness and pain are different. So really in my treatment, when I really get time to work with someone, understanding something can be sensitive without being stiff and it can be stiff without being sensitive. And just because we make it less stiff doesn't mean it's going to necessarily feel better. That's one of the fundamental assumptions you know, from decades ago in our work that is being called into question too. Yeah. And, you know, in an instance like that too, the stiffness may not be, you know, the same thing as what is the pain driver. The stiffness may That's be right. the reaction to the go. perception of pain or the fear of pain in that area. And so the muscles are guarding and limiting motion, and then that's what's perceived as the stiffness. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so that's part of why so many people get such dramatic results from one session too, that if we can really quickly turn down someone's guarding mm-hmm. and then they realize their body realizes, oh, I can do things I didn't think I could do. And all of a sudden there's a whole lot of range of motion that comes back. Yeah. So yeah. that's, I mean, I do, I do focus a lot on gentle mobilization. Yeah. And in particular, that inferior glide of the humerus, if there's that uh, subacromial pain, that pain in those places we've been describing. And my old explanation was I was decompressing that space. I was mm-hmm. preventing so much compression. And I still think that's probably going helpful in some cases. But for sure that the work I do to help make sure there's the inferior glide capability of the humerus, and I'll put the handout in that explains that, uh, it seems to be really effective for this yeah. type of work. Right. So some really good strategies there, and we've we've uncovered um, some nice dilemmas to consider and, and uh, think about with subacromial pain here, looking at some of these uh, causes and causative factors. Um, any last thoughts that um, you want to wrap up with well, there? Yeah, there? There are details more than summary thoughts. There's still a yeah. couple little details I want to catch there. Yeah. That, any, you know, we've got, we've talked about being really tissue specific or structure specific, but often we'll find that anything in that region can help. And it can be surprising what does anatomically. I'll often think of anything that crosses the glenohumeral joint or anything that crosses the, the chromoclavicular joint as being a possibility. But then there's also times, especially when something's really painful, that starting somewhere completely different gets even better results in the shoulders than starting locally. Mm-hmm. And then the same has been true found to be true with, uh, say, strengthening protocols, where sometimes uh, exercises that target the most painful structure uh, are too hard for people to do or too painful, too challenging and irritate things. And that 
overall physical activity has been shown to be really helpful for a painful shoulder, painful subacromial yeah. shoulder pain. Just the people that uh, exercised, say, 10 minutes a day had far fewer symptoms, severity of symptoms than the people that had no physical activity. Yeah. So just a little bit of overall health can help quite a bit yeah. you know, with so many things. And that really highlights, too, the the factor that so much of musculoskeletal care is very um, mechanically driven. It's very um, sort of mechanically focused in like, we've got this problem in the shoulder. So now fix those things in the shoulder. And that's what we need to do. And in, in many instances that, that does limit our ability to see some of the bigger, broader picture of, of overall movement enhancement through, through the individual that, that might be able to accomplish a big chunk of that work, um, without, um, irritating the, the local structure. So maybe we're setting people up to go out in their life and live in a way that helps the issue. Mm -hmm. And there's less emphasis on taking care of it all right there on the table and getting it yeah. all resolved right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else from your side on what helps? No, I think we've really, uh, we've drilled down into some, some fascinating and, and great stuff there. And of course, we can explore a number of these things in, in greater detail, which we probably will do in some future episodes and come back and, and revisit some yeah, of those things. Yeah, I'm already making uh, some sure. so, That's right. Yeah. So well, I know um, you have some very specific shoulder courses in your repertory. Yeah, yeah, we've got uh, a good comprehensive shoulder course in our in our online orthopedic massage program where we delve into a lot of these things in great detail, and and you do as well, right over well, there. With right, both both the one hour short versions, but then a larger principles version. Yeah, and then there's also Diane Matkowski's shoulder jam coming up. That we'll put links to all that stuff in our show notes. Yeah. Should I so, uh, jump into our closing messages there, you think? Yeah. Do we have a closing sponsor message here today? Closing sponsor today is Handspring Publishing. And when I was looking for a publisher for a book that I wanted to write, I was lucky enough to end up with two offers, one from a huge international media conglomerate. I'm not kidding you. And the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm glad I chose them, Handspring because not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, and by the way, it's volume one that has four chapters on the shoulder and covers a lot of the techniques I'm going to put in the handout, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help their patients achieve wellness. Yes, and Handspring's Move to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts featuring their authors, including a recent one with Robert Schleip and Jan Wilke talking about the new edition of Fascia in Sport and Movement, where they share new research on hot topics such as kettlebell training, foam rolling, fascia's role in sensation, and more. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And we thank you, Handspring. And thanks to all our sponsors. So if you can, stop by our sites for the handout we mentioned, for show notes, transcripts, and, and extras. You can pick up links to that also from uh, my website at academyofclinicalmassage.com and Till also on your site there, which, where is that? Advanced-trainings.com. We love to hear from you. Uh, email us your questions or things you want to hear us talk about at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media, my, just my name, at Tilluka. How about you, Whitney? Where do people find you? People can find me also on social media under my name, Whitney Lowe, there as well. And uh, we do encourage you also to follow us on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, your favorite podcast platform of choice, whatever that is. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
or wherever you, else you happen to listen. And if you're unable to find it in any of those locations, you can always grab a copy of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and play it backwards on a 78 RPM turntable and hear us there. Is that true? I didn't know it that. It is true. It is true. I tried it. Yes. <laughs> I'll okay. do that. Yeah. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you, sir. Enjoyed it. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Okay. Okay.